Um, wow. Thanks. Yeah, those such kind words. Um, uh, yeah, good morning. Um, it's so sweet to be together. Um, apologize for the feedback. We didn't have a second to test the mic before the service. But, um, man, as we were worshiping together, I just was so blown away about, I don't know, the things that we were singing lines up so much of what we're going to see today in our passage. And it's just a beautiful reminder of God's faithfulness and his provision for his people. And I'm just so excited today to uh, be able to bring God's word um, to you. Again, my name is Hunter. Um, I'm a member here at Bedrock. Um, and yeah, it's just so good to be together. So good to worship together, to be reminded of who God is together. Um, and if you remember over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through a, we went through a sermon series called We Are the Church. And we learned all the, we looked through scripture and learned about what, what is God called the church to be? Who does God call the church to be? Um, and also we were looking at our core values as a church. Um, so we looked at our values such as the word, um, there's team, there's service, and then there's community. Um, and if you remember before that, we were also going through a sermon series, the book of Joshua. So today we are going back into the book of Joshua, which I'm so excited about. Um, but also, if you're like me, you may be wondering, where are we in Joshua? Because it's been a couple of weeks. So um, I, you know, a couple weeks has passed and it's easy to just kind of forget like what, what have we covered so far in the book of Joshua? So we're going to take a couple moments to recap um, some of the things that we have learned so far. So far. So in the book of Joshua so far, the, the book has been focusing on God leading his people into the land that he has promised them. Again, this was a, a, a season and a time that his people had been waiting for for years and years and years. And the time had finally come for them to, to be able to enter the promised land. Um, and what we're going to see, like what we saw like in, in those passages that we read before um, a couple weeks ago, we saw God's faithfulness in so many different ways. Um, and he, he calls his people to courage and for them, for them to trust him as he's leading them into the promised land. Um, we see so much of his faithfulness. And first, we saw the, the crazy story of how he allowed his people to cross over the Jordan River on dry land. He stopped at the waters of the Jordan River and allowed his people to cross in. And then from there, we saw his faithfulness in um, Israel being able to take the, the cities of Jericho and Ai. Um, but if you remember, those uh, victories did not come as smoothly <laughs> as Israel probably would have thought. Um, before the Israelites took Jericho, the Lord had instructed his people, um, don't take any of these possessions or treasures that you find for yourself. These are to be devoted to the Lord. Um, so everything that you find is going to be devoted to the Lord. Um, you're not going to take anything for yourself. Um, and so what we see is that God provides in a huge way by, by breaking down the walls of Jericho for the Israelites to come in and take the city. Um, and then from there, uh, they go on to try to take the city of Ai. Um, but unfortunately, they suffer a humiliating defeat. And it come, becomes known to the people that the reason for this was because there was a man named Achan who had decided to take some of the treasures for himself and, and hide it and keep it for himself for his own gain. And so um, the, the sin becomes known amongst all the people um, and it affected all of Israel and even caused them to lose that battle with Ai. Um, and so unfortunately, he, the matter was dealt with and he was put to death. Um, but with the sin amongst the people being addressed, um, God instructs his people once again to try to take the city of Ai. And this time they're victorious. And so they celebrate their victory together and they renew their covenant. 
And so now this brings us to chapter nine, um, which was the, the last chapter that we covered before we took a break in the We Are the Church series. And this chapter has a huge, um, it sets the stage a lot for our, our story today. Um, so if you may remember, um, I think Drew had preached that sermon um, on chapter nine, but it begins by telling us how many of the kings of the, the, in the area of Canaan um, were terrified about, about Israel coming in. Um, and it also talks about this one specific people group called the Gibeonites. Um, so rather than seeing, trying to go up against Israel on their own, and try to fight them, they're like, well, let's see if we can devise a plan to do something else to kind of trick them. So what they do, they put on some old ragged clothing, they get some stale old bread and some <laughs> burst wineskins that were old, and they, they walk over to, to where Israel was in Gilgal, um, and they try to make a peace treaty with them. And so the, Joshua and the Israelites are skeptical of them at first, they're like, I'm not really sure, like, are you actually from a faraway land? That's what they were saying. They were like, we're from a faraway land, like, just make a peace treaty with us so we can have peace with you. But, um, you know, Joshua and the people begin, like, trying to sample the goods or, like, the bread and stuff like that to see if it's actually true. And in haste, they decide to make a decision, um, and they end up not consulting the Lord uh, for the peace treaty that they're going to make with, with his, sorry, with the Gibeonites. So, sadly... In three days, the Israelites find out that uh, these people are not from a faraway land, but they're 20 miles away in a city called Gibeon, and so they were, they were duped. Um, but the craziest thing is that despite being tricked, Joshua and the Israelites choose to, to honor their peace treaty with, with the Gibeonites. And at the end of chapter 9, Joshua asks, why, like, why would you trick us? Like, why, would you, why would you do this to us? And the response is like so interesting from the Gibeonites. It says, that they had heard about the news about what God was doing and that he was giving them the land um, to the Israelites. And in their fear, not wanting to lose their lives, they chose to try to, you know, they devised this plan to, to trick Israel into a treaty um, just so that they could save their lives. Um, and so because of that, they chose to serve Israel and chose to serve God and submit themselves to God rather um, <laughs> than be at the, the hands of the Israelites. Um, and so... The craziest thing is that Joshua shows them mercy. Even though he was tricked, he was like, we're going to show you mercy because they're, they're choosing to submit themselves to, to Israel and to God and to serve them. And the story reminds me a little bit of Rahab, if you remember back in, like, in Joshua, I think chapter 2, where she's willing to you know, forsake her own people to, to help out the Israelites when they were coming to take Jericho um, or spy out the land in Jericho. Um, but just like you know, Rahab and doing that, and like Rahab was offered a place amongst the people, like the Gibeonites are now among the people of Israel. Um, so again, what we're going to see is that this is going to set the stage for us in a huge way for the passage that we're reading in chapter 10 today. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to jump over to Joshua chapter 10. That's the, the chapter we're going to be in today. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're going to be starting at verses 1 through 15, but we're going to be covering the whole chapter. But the, the chapter is broken up into a few parts. Uh, the verses one through nine you're going to find is that is a little bit of like a uh, a summary of like the threat that happens towards Israel's new friends, the Gibeonites. So uh, there's an attack that's going to happen, and then what we're going to see in verses nine, sorry, ten through eleven, is that we're going to see Israel's response to this this attack and this threat on the Gibeonites. And then for the rest of the chapter, verses twelve through fifteen, sixteen through twenty-eight, and twenty-nine through forty-three. There are going to be three additional accounts that's going to provide further details about what happens in the story and how Israel responds to these attacks. So 
We're going to read a story today about God's intervention, his miraculous intervention amongst his people um, to fight for them and to, to be amongst them and to give them victory. So, but before we go any further, um, let's pray. We got a lot to cover today, so let's pray. Lord, thank you that um, you brought us here today. Thank you for waking us up this morning. Thank you for calling us to be your people, to be known and loved by you. And Lord, would you be with um, the word this morning? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our minds? Would you give us open ears and eyes to receive your word? Um, Lord, help us to respond, um, whether that is responding to your truth um, or um, responding in faith, responding in um, encouraging another person, um, whatever that looks like this morning, Lord, help us to respond to you, what you want to do. God, thank you that you um, do not abandon your people. Thank you that you go with your people. You love your people. Um, and thank you that you have called us your own. So, Lord, would you be here with us this morning? Um, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Cool. So let's start off in verse one, and we're going to be reading verses one through five. So as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon to make war against it. Um, so once again, we're going to, this, this passage kind of starts off, you see, kind of see the response of the local rulers to Israel's entrance into the, to, to the promised land um, and taking the cities. If you remember back in, in Joshua chapter 5, we read about how like the hearts of the Amorites and the Canaanites melted in fear with the presence of Israelites coming into the land. Um, and this fear is escalating because they begin to capture the cities like Jericho and I, um, and especially these cities were being devoted to destruction and offered to the Lord. So for the people, they're like, okay, something's happening, like they're getting bigger and they're growing. And now we find like Adonai Zedek, the other king of uh, Jerusalem, finds that Gibeon has made a treaty with the Israelites. And so this causes him to increase in fear and worry. And he's kind of just like, it's like this point, like he's watching like all these things happen. And he's at this point now, he's like, okay, like, all right, Gibeon is now part of this. Like, absolutely not. We got to stop them. Like, no more. We can't keep doing this. We got to put an end to this. And so we see, like, the text tells us a couple things, reasons why um, Gibeon, like, the king of uh, Jerusalem is afraid. So the first thing he says is that Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. So this wasn't like some podunk town in the middle of nowhere. Like, this was a prominent place where people would come to gather or people would come for commerce or 
um, there'd be a lot of things that would happen to see that would make it prominent. The second reason was that it was greater than I. Than I. So they probably would have thought like, okay, Israel took I, that's one thing. But now they have Gibeon, it's like, okay, this is a whole other thing that they're adding on to, to Israel. Um, it's gonna be a threat to them. And the last thing is we see that it, all its men were warriors. Um, so it likely means that they're probably like, okay, so now those warriors for Gibeon are now a part of Israel. So like now it's like all of them combined, we gotta go up against. So um, there's just a lot of reasons as to why like they're gonna be a threat. And another reason that we're gonna see is that because of the, the, the location of Gibeon and it's, it's placed in all of the kingdoms, um, it was gonna be a threat if they no, the southern kingdoms no longer had access to the northern kingdoms. Um, so essentially what we're gonna see is that um, in Gibeon, like it would have been a place where they could have gone through the trade or it would have um, used that city for connecting them to northern cities for, for political ties. Um, so losing that, they were getting cut off from the north. So for the south, like their, their livelihoods were gonna be at stake because who are we supposed to trade with now? Like they were getting cut off from the north. And so there's this uh, quote from uh, Richard Hess. Um, he says this, all these centers benefited by trade with Jerusalem and its roads to the north. If Egypt still dominated the coastal plain, the Benjaminite plateau may have provided these towns with their primary access to all northern markets. With these cut off and the survival of Jerusalem threatened, the rumors of Israel's successes would have brought the leaders of the southern towns to the aid of their ally. And as the story goes on to relate, the domino theory operated. If they couldn't stop Israel at Jerusalem, the leaders knew that their own towns faced destruction. So Israel is growing and they're take, they have Gibeon now. And so there's like, this is a threat to us. We have to like get back Gibeon because if not, like we're, it, we're just gonna fall. It's not gonna, it's not gonna work out. Um, so seeing the dangers of this alliance, so Adonai did that calls out to the other kings, Hoham, Hiram, Japhia, and Debir. Um, and he pleads with them. And he's like, come and help me, like take Gibeon. Um, essentially like, yeah, again, their livelihoods and security is gonna be at stake. And so they're wanting to put a stop to that to try to restore what access they did have to the Northern kingdoms. And so what we see at the end of verse five is that they begin to come up and attack the city of Gibeon. So it's five against one and they're majorly outnumbered. Um, so let's keep going in verse six. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So if Joshua went up from Gilgal and he and all the people of the war with him and all the mighty men of valor, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with the great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, and while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So again, we find that the Gibeonites are outnumbered. So the odds aren't looking great for them. And so they're reaching out to Israel. And it specifically says this, it says, do not relax your hand from your servants, which essentially is just another way of saying like, please don't abandon us. <laughs> like, please don't leave us alone. We need your help. So they're asking 
Israel to come to their aid, come to their help, so that they can help fight them. Um, and again, it blows my mind that Joshua, like, his, so he has a treaty with the, the Gibeonites, and he chooses to come to their aid. Like, even though they were tricked into this treaty, he's like, all right, we're still going to honor this. We're still going to come help you, even though they're trying to attack you. Um, and so, yeah, so even though Israel's going to come join, Israel's going to come join them, they're still going to be outnumbered. It's going to be five to two. I think a lot of times what we're going to see is, like, I think from our natural perspective, it's like, okay, like, the odds are definitely not in their favor. Like, <laughs> it's probably not going to look great. But so often, like, the Lord sees more than what we can see, and he can do more than what we can think. Um, and we see, like, in this passage, how the Lord just reminds Joshua of his presence, that he's going to be the one that's going to go with his people and give them victory over these kingdoms. Um, and that they're not even going to be able to resist them. Um, so the text says that the Israel marches all night long to get to Gibeon. Um, and when they get there, they launch a surprise attack on the Amorite armies. Um, okay, so they marched all night. And the distance between where they were at Gilgal uh, and Gibeon was 20 miles. So that's like almost a marathon. So imagine running a marathon and then you're going to just fight all day. Then <laughs> like, like you're not even good to breath. I just think and imagine, like, if it was me, I'd just be getting there, like, huffing and puffing, and people would just be like, this, like, why is he so exhausted? But they ran throughout the whole night, or marched throughout the whole night, and this not isn't, like, flat land that they're going over. Like, this is, like, hills that they're going through. Um, but the, the, the Amorite kingdoms who are attacking Gibeon didn't even see them coming. And it says that the Lord intervenes. He, said he throws them into a panic whenever Israelites, the Israelites show up. And it says that Israel deals a great blow um, to the Amorite armies and begins to chase them through Bethoron and as far as Azekah and Makeda. Um, so that's, there's a map that I have. If you don't mind pulling it up. Um, yeah, this is a long distance that they're going to be chasing the armies. Um, if you follow the red line, sorry, it's a little bit blurry, but they go all the way from Gilgal all the way to Gibeon and then chase them all the way down south where that red down to Makeda down at the bottom. So they're going a long way. This is a long, <laughs> a long time that they're chasing the armies down there. Um, and as the Amorite armies are fleeing, we see the Lord intervene in another way. So the first way we saw is that he, he causes the people, the Amorite armies to panic because the Israelites show up. Um, but the second way we see that the Lord intervenes in this passage is that the Lord causes these hailstones to drop down. Um, and it wipes out even more of the army. Um, and it's just so cool because we see again, like the Lord has said that he's going to fight for his people. And we see, like specifically in this story, like how he's literally doing that for his people by wiping out more of the army. And it says even more than what the Israelites struck down with their sword. Um, I think it's just a reminder for his people that, like, he promised that he's going to go before them. He's going to give them victory. And, like, the Israelites are walking in that victory that the Lord is giving them. Um, and, like, the Lord, again, he reminds them to be courageous. And it's like, I can imagine, like, with stories like that, they're just like, okay, yeah, like, God is going to do this. He's going to make a way. He's going to make a way for us to have victory. And we don't have to have fear because he's going with us and before us. Um, so we have this summary um, of the events that take place. We see Israel come to the aid of Gibeon, um, and God grants the Israelites victory as they pursue their enemies all the way back down to where they came from. Um, so the next three passages that we're going to be focusing on again are additional accounts of, of what happens in verses 1, one through 11. Um, so we're going to see um, another way that God's going to intervene in this battle, and then we're also going to see the defeat of the five Amorite kings and then um, also Israel's conquest of the southern uh, kingdoms down the bottom of the promised land. So let's go back to the passage. So verses 12 through 15. 
At that time, Joshua said, spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is, not, is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry for, to set for about a whole day. There had been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp of Gilgal. So these verses, verses 12 through 15, just show another way in which God is intervening on behalf of his people. Um, it shows how um, he causes the sun and moon to stand still um, until the nation is able to take vengeance on its, on its enemies. And so, again, we're just reminded about how God is giving these, these armies into the hands of the Israelites. Um, and there's a, a couple of views here on the sun standing still. Um, there's a traditional view of the sun, God literally causing the sun to stand still in the sky. Um, that the, it was a prolonged day, an extended day, um, where the Lord provides a miracle for the Israelites to carry out their defeat of its enemies. Um, but then there's also other views that could have had, could be there that people have interpreted. So it could have been that omen, uh, the sun standing still. Um, some people would say there was an eclipse that happened, depending on how you read it. And then some people would also say maybe it's figurative Im imagery that happens. Um, uh, to illustrate like how the Lord is fighting for his people. Um, but interesting, like in, in verse 13, it's interesting because it, it talks about how the sun literally stops in the sky and did not hurry to set. Um, and so I think for me, it seems more that like this was an extended day. The Lord provides this miracle to allow for Israel to carry out its, its victory over its enemies. But I think what really, again, stands out in this, in this passage is how... Um, God again intervenes on behalf of his people again and again and again um, to give them victory over their enemies and show, continue to show them that he's fighting for them. Um, so the passage goes on to say um, that this is also attested to in another text called the book of Jashar, which uh, is, I don't, we don't have access to that. It's no longer here with us today. But um, what we can see is that it's attested in other places too. This was a story that was like, like needed to be written down in multiple places almost. And so, if you go on to verse 14, this is really interesting. This is the really interesting. Um, it says, There had been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And the thing that is crazy for me is that, okay, so he says there had never been a day like it before, which I can imagine that makes sense for the sun standing still, prolonged day, like that makes sense. What would proceed, sorry, what goes after him saying the, like there had never been a day like this before was that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, like one man. And that's like what that seems like a connection to is like, that was what was made that day so significant is that the Lord, he like obeyed the voice of a man. Um, and not that he just like heard or listened to, but that he was like, yes, like I'm fighting for my people. So yes, I'm going to do this so that you can carry out your victory. And so again, we just see this, this response of the Lord um, to his people. And we also see this, um, this uh, interaction that Joshua has with the Lord to go before him um, and to plead with them and ask, request, like, hey, can you cause the sons to stand still and fight for us so that we can continue to defeat our enemies? Um, I think what we're going to see here with that, and it's going to take us to our first point, um, 
I mean, with this passage, we really truly get to see like the power of prayer. Like God shows up in a miraculous way in the story, and it's, it's so awesome. It's so cool to see. Um, and but I think what we also see is that like God cares and loves loves His people, and because of that, He also hears His people, um, even in the midst of a battle. And so that's our first point today: God hears our prayers, even in the battle. Um, I don't necessarily think that this passage is telling us like how to pray or like necessarily what to pray, but it just shows like God hears his people. He knows his people. When this story happens, he's li they're literally in the midst of the battle. It's not before the battle. It's not after the battle. It's like in the midst of the fight, Joshua is requesting that the Lord fights for them, that he um, intervenes on their behalf. And um, yeah, I think sometimes in life, um, if we're all honest, like it, it feels a little bit of a battle sometimes. Um, you know, maybe it's a season of intense doubt and you're just fighting a struggle to, to hold closely to the Lord, or maybe it's a sin or that feels like it's clinging so closely and you're fighting temptation, or maybe it's spiritual warfare that you're fighting and it's oppression and um, you're trying to dispel the lies with the truth of the word. Um, I think in a lot of ways today, there's there's a lot of battles that we can walk through. Um, I think it's also easy too, like in those seasons, um, where where it feels like the battle or the trial is going on for so long, um, and you're kind of just like, I've been like praying about this for so long that you would take this away, like, and it's still here. I'm still in the middle of the season. It's still in the middle of the trial. Like, are you, do you hear me? Do you see what's going on? Like, where are you in this? Um, I think oftentimes, like in the midst of these trials, um, he's drawing us to, to 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 know him, to come closer to him, to lean on him, to lay it all out for him. Um, and I'm going to share a story, and I have to apologize to our city group because they've heard this story many times. But <laughs> um, but I remember uh, back in the season uh, when Rachel and I were engaged. Um, it was a particularly intense season of a lot of spiritual warfare for me, but also just like intensely like battling a lot of things. Um, that being said, I think like with premarital counseling, like getting ready for marriage, there's nothing that makes you look at your life and just say like, I got issues. Like there's a, I, I got problems and I don't want to bring that into marriage. So um, I think there's a lot of things that the Lord was making known to my heart and my mind in that season. And out of that season too, there were a lot of like heavy and dark things that were coming up. The Lord was bringing up. And I was just, I remember in that season, I was like, Lord, I don't understand like why you're bringing this up. Like why now? I don't understand. Like, it doesn't make sense. And I remember just that season being so heavy, um, being so distraught and just like, I don't know what to do. Like I just feel so broken. I feel like so sinful and, like I was feeling the weight of the brokenness of my sin. And it was just like, I, I just don't know. And there was a period of time for Rachel and I where we were both just like, are we ready for marriage? Like, are, is this, <laughs> is this, are we, should we do this now? Or should we wait to kind of just work through some things? But there was just so much that was happening. And I remember in that season, there was um, just so many days where I would come home from work and it'd be a particularly rough day, <laughs> just battling. And I would, just lock myself in my room and cry out to the Lord. And um, I think when, you know, it's hard those moments when you feel like 
the, the, the brokenness of your sin, I'm crying out to the Lord, just like pleading for the Lord, like pleading for his healing, his righteousness to cover me. Because I was like, oh, there's no way, there's literally nothing in me that is <laughs> could cover my own sin because I know, I can see how truly wicked I am. And I just remember like in that season crying and crying out to the Lord, like, Lord, I need you to take this away from me because I can't keep walking through this. I can't keep doing this. I need you to fight this battle for me because I, I literally just can't like keep walking in this without your intervention, without your, your coming <laughs> to my help. Because I'm, if I'm trying to do this on my own, I'm going to fall. I'm going to, like, it's not, I'm just going to be so broken. Um, and I remember just, like, in that season, continuing crying out to the Lord. And, like, there's a lot of things that I, and I look back at that season, there's a lot of things I remember that the Lord was teaching me. A couple of things. One is, um, the value of bringing things into the light and confessing your sins to the people who are close to you and walk alongside you to point you to Jesus. Um, that was so huge for me because those deep, dark things that I feel like were coming up, I was like, who do I share those with? And I learned that the Lord was like calling me to share those with him, but also it's like with the people around me that I don't have to walk through this alone, but I get to walk with people through that. I also learned um, the value of taking God at his word. Um, I think like, I believed the gospel during that time, and I believed who Jesus is. But there was another thing where it's like, do I take God at his word and what he says is true? So, for example, do I, do I trust that when God, when it says in the scripture that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness? Like, do I believe that he means it? And I think that that was so helpful for me as I was walking the season. It's like, God says what he means. He's a he is, has integrity in his word. Um, he's faithful to that promise. He's going to forgive us. But the last thing I think that um, really stood out to me on that season um, was Rachel and I's wedding day. And I remember, so that season <laughs> was a lot. We went through a lot. And um, we did end up deciding to still move forward with marriage, going back to what I said earlier. So uh, just backtracking. Um, but I remember our wedding day, and I remember it being a day um, just so filled with the Lord's presence. And I remember, and also just so saturated with the gospel. I remember it was during our ceremony. So we got married on a farm. We're outside. And I remember during our ceremony, uh, there was a time where we're praying together. And there's this gust of wind that comes through. And like, that's probably like not significant for a lot of people. But I think for us, it was like a reminder, like, the Lord is present with us. Sometimes in the scripture, it describes God, the spirit, like as being like a, a gust of wind that comes through. And I think in that moment, like we had just been through so much in that season. And for me, it was like this intense battle. And so we get to this day where Rachel and I are going to be united in marriage and just being reminded of the Lord's presence. And it was just like this burden be lifted. And it was just like a victory of like, okay, like he's going to take care of us. Like, even though there's a lot of hard things in life, like he's going to take care of us. There's victory because of who he is. Um, and I just remember like in that season, like looking back and be like, okay, like I know the Lord in my prayer because of how he answered on that day, our wedding day. Um, and I think like my hope and my prayer for us today is that we could all be reminded, like in the seasons that we're walking through, like the Lord hears you, that he sees you, that he knows you, he loves you and cares for you. Um, and, you know, sometimes in those seasons, like where it's intense battle, I think he's 
sometimes stripping away pride <laughs> and self-reliance and calling us to, to lean on him and to draw near to him. And so um, I hope that today we can find comfort in the fact, the simple truth, not even that God answers prayer, but in the simple truth that he hears our prayers and that he's with us. Um, so we still have a lot to cover. Um, so we're going to jump over to the next uh, account that we're going to find. So this is going to be in uh, verses uh, 16 through 18. Um, so this account specifically is going to focus on Israel's trapping, excuse me, um, of the and defeating the five Amorite kings. So they are able to, to capture these Amorite kings, and they trap them in this cave. Um, and so as they captured them, Joshua's like, okay, he tells his men, like, go ahead and go and chase the rest of the armies back down, because they were all running back to their city. So he's like, go chase them, chase them down. Um, and they were wiping out the rest of them. Um, and then a few of them make it back to their cities. And so the army comes back to Maqueda, um, where they are, uh, where the story takes place. And so the, when the soldiers of Israel return to the camp after pursuing their enemies, Joshua puts the five kings to death. And Joshua reminds his people, it's like, just as the Lord has given us victory over these five kings, he's going to continue to do this as we, we take this, the rest of this land. Um, but he's still going to go before us and give us victory. Um, so what we're also going to see after that story, we're not going to take a lot of time to, to read through that, but what we're going to see at the end of that too is, so they defeat these five Amorite kings, but then they also um, are going to take the city of Maqueda as well, where they're, where they're nearby. Um, and just like they put the king of the five kings to death, they're also going to put the king of Maqueda to death as well. Okay, this is going to bring us to the last account that we're going to find in chapter 10, verses 29 through 43. So I know we just like skipped through a lot of that, but we still got a lot to go, go through. So this account shows us how after taking the city of Maqueda, how the army of Israel proceeds to various towns throughout the southern kingdoms um, and, and captures them. So the text tells us that they go from Maqueda to Libna, from Libna to Lachish, to Lachish, to Eglon, from Eglon to Hebron, from Hebron to Debir. And of these cities that were destroyed and captured, the Israel armies then turn their, their efforts towards the country. So they go to the, the, ne the Negev, and the lowland and all their kings, they go to Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza and the country of the Goshen. So they defeated the five Amorite kings, and now they're going to take the rest of the land down south. The Lord gives them victories over these kingdoms. But what I want to do is turn your attentions to verse 42. So it says, And Joshua captured all these things in their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fight, fought for Israel. Um, I don't know if that verse sounds a little bit familiar to you, but we read that a little bit earlier back in verse 14 as well, where it says the Lord fights for Israel. Um, so I think this is just an incredible reminder of how God is continuing to fight for his people. He's continuing to provide for them, giving them the victory. Um, and he, in the, even in the presence of many enemies, the Lord is bringing um, his people through to the land, allowing them to conquer it and making a way for them. Um, and I think specifically with the, the topic of, of conquest, there can be this hard question of like, okay, it's like, what do we do with this? What do we do with this, this concept of conquest in the Old Testament where there's a lot of people that died? Um, and then there's like the question of like, does God call us to conquest today? Like, does he call us to seek violence on the, for, for the sake of the gospel? Um, in short, the answer is going to be no, but we're, <laughs> we're going to explain that. We're going to walk through that together. Um, so really to understand like a lot of that question, we kind of have to understand the context of 
what God was doing in, in this season for the life of Israel. Um, so first and foremost, we want to note that the conquest was specifically limited to the Canaanites. It was not for the whole world. It was not for um, everyone. It was specifically limited to this area that God had promised his people. Um, Drew had mentioned this passage um, a little bit ago, um, but it says in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, um, it talks about God's promise to Abraham and that there would be a land reserved for his offspring. Um, the offspring would be taken away to a different land, and then they would eventually come back. Um, and that, uh, it specifically says in verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Um, so there is going to be this time that God was going to give this land to his people. Um, but it, what the time wasn't yet when he was given that promise to Abraham. It was going to be a later generation um, when eventually God was going to pour out his justice on, on the Amorites. Um, but then maybe that also brings up another question for you, like, why the Canaanites? Like, why them? I understand. So that passage we just read helps us kind of understand a little bit of why. Um, but also, what I want to direct your attention to is another passage um, in Deuter Deuteronomy chapter 9. Verses four through six. Don't feel like I have to flip there. We have it in the, behind me here. But it says, Moses says this to the people of Israel. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into to possess this land. Whereas it is because of, your, of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations for the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. This is heart check. Um, so this is wild. This is wild. So the the Lord is, is giving this land to his people. And it's nothing of what the people did. It's no, no merit on their end that, they, that the Lord gives them this land. But he's just like, because I want to dwell with you, because you are my people, I'm going to give this, this land to you, but it's, it's going to be purely a gift to you so that I can dwell with you. Um, nothing that you have done, because again, you are a stubborn people. Um, this also reminds me, I'm just going to jump to this really quick, of another story. And uh, earlier on in Joshua, where Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army. You guys may remember this story. And he, the Joshua asks the commander, he says, um, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on the enemy's side? And the commander goes, neither. <laughs> and he says, I'm on the Lord's side. And so for Joshua, there's like just this like, okay, like uh, we have to align our hearts with what God is doing and what God is going, how he's going to lead us into this land. It's not going to be anything that we do, but we're aligning what God wants to do through this promised land and align their hearts with him. Um, but also, like, so we talked about, like, okay, so the wick, for the wickedness of the people that, that, that the Lord is driving them out. So what was that specific wickedness that, that was um, the Lord would drive them out for? So there's two passages that you can look to for that. One of them we'll look at is Leviticus chapter 18. Um, so in that passage, it shows a little bit more, like, there was a lot of moral corruption, specifically regarding sex. Uh, but then there were also situations in which the people were offering their children as sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord just like, yeah, we can't, I can't have this, like, with this presence here, with that wickedness, like, with my people. Like, we have to cleanse the land, we have to cleanse the people so that 
my people don't fall into idol worship or try to worship me by offering their children as sacrifices. And so um, he doesn't want his people to be led astray by the wickedness of the land. Um, but he's, he's wanting them to, to, to dwell. He was wanting to dwell with them, and he's wanting to be with them and for them to worship him um, and not worship him by trying to do sacrifices with their children. Um, so God pours out his justice on the wickedness of, of the Canaanites, but, then, but we still see like these glimmers where even like the stories of Rahab and the Gibeonites where God, like if, if the people turned to him, like he was like allowing them to come into his fold, um, that he wasn't going to reject them if they were going to turn to him. Um, but um, I think this is just all like a reminder of like, again, that God is going to be with his people, um, that he's going to provide for them. He's going to make a victory for them um, as they continue to take the land. Um, We also see, too, that God, uh, he doesn't withhold his own justice from his own people. We saw that with the story of Achan. Like, he was willing to pour out justice on his own, his own people so that they would be a, a nation wholly devoted to him. And so this is what God is fighting for. He's given them the victory. He's giving them the land so that the people would dwell with him. That was the goal. That the people would dwell with him. They would worship him. They would be his and his alone. Um, and as an outpouring of their love and their devotion for the Lord that they would also eventually be a blessing to the other nations. Um, and so all this being said, I want to kind of conclude by saying, again, there's a lot of differences between this context and what happens here and like our context as believers today. Um, I think today, like he's, again, I don't think he's calling us to conquer land. I don't think there's anything that says, let's go take my neighbor's house. You know, I'm not going to go do that, you know, um, not for the name of the gospel. So also probably not at all. I'm never, <laughs> probably never going to do that. Um, <laughs> cheers. Um, but, um, no, instead as believers and as Christians, um, by the new Testament, he has commit, the Lord has commissioned us out with the gospel to invite people into his kingdom. We don't take people by violence, but we invite them into his kingdom through the gospel by sharing the gospel and I'm um, sharing the good news of who he is. And that through salvation, there's this beautiful thing that the nations would come to him, um, and that people from all walks of life are going to enter his kingdom. I think that also in the New Testament, it kind of shows us a little bit of a new kind of warfare that Christians are going to experience. So um, we're going to pull this up on the, on the board as well. Uh, Paul says in chapter 6, uh, verse 12 of Ephesians, uh, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Um, so it seems like there's like this difference now, like the, the, the battle that we're, is being waged now has, is not necessarily like conquering land, but instead has to do with against the evil spiritual forces of the world. Um, and then rather than putting on like physical armor or like physical weapons that you're going to take up, Paul also instructs like this is, you're going to have spiritual armor and spiritual weapons. He says this in verses 13 through 18 of also the same chapter. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you will may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. When all circumstances take up, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and all supplication. 
I don't feel like oftentimes we talk a lot about spiritual warfare nowadays, um, but there is a reality that there is an enemy, Satan, who is wanting to do everything that he can to, to try to make us fall, to try to um, make us not trust God or run to sin or temptation. Um, but the beautiful thing is that God has not left us to try to fight the enemy by our own power or by ourselves, but he gives us himself, he gives us his strength, but he also has given us his righteousness, his faith, the gospel, his word and prayer to defend ourselves against the enemy's attacks. Um, so our, our warfare might be a little different <laughs> than what the Israelites was, um, but again, there's spiritual battles that we're going to face um, in life, and there's still so many times that we're desperately going to need the Lord to fight for us. And again, we saw in Joshua chapter 10, there was twice is repeated that the Lord fights for Israel. He, the Lord fights for his people. He doesn't abandon them. Um, and then he, he doesn't abandon them as they enter the promised land in Joshua. Um, in the same way, like he also doesn't abandon us. He gives us victory. Um, but we'll touch more on that a little bit later. I think what where we can settle a little bit to today for our next point um, is just knowing that God, God's presence is near, even in the battle. Um, God's presence with Lewis with his people as they were as with Israel as they were conquering um, the promised land. Um, and so also today we can be reminded that God's presence is with us too. Even in the battle, even when things are really difficult, even when things are really tough, um, even when life feels really chaotic and you're in crisis mode, um, I think sometimes it's easy in those moments to feel like God is distant, that it's like, where are you? I don't understand like where you are. And in the season, like it feels like we're just battling through so much like temptation or oppression uh, from the enemy, spiritual warfare or anxiety, depression. Like there's just so much. Sometimes it feels that we're battling. It's just like, hey, God, like, where are you in this? Um, but I think what this story reminds us today is that just as the Israelites did not abandon Gibeon, so also the Lord does not abandon us. Also, just as the Lord did not abandon the Israelites as they were conquering land, so also he does not abandon us. Um, I think it's just a beautiful reminder that he doesn't leave us alone in our battles, but um, he fights them with us and for us. But there's also another beautiful reminder. Um, I mean, we were singing about this earlier. <laughs> um, and that the Lord has already given us the victory. Um, that through Jesus, like through his, his life and his death and his resurrection, he has already given us the victory over sin and death and over Satan. Um, I'm going to pull up 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. It says this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's a sweet reminder. Sweet reminder that our labor and work in the Lord is not in vain. Um, that we don't fight this battle without hope. Um, and our hope is in the fact that the victory has already been won. The, the enemy that we're fighting is already defeated, so the battle has already been won. Um, and we can rest in knowing that like sin has already been defeated by Jesus. It was defeated on the cross. Um, and that 
um, he took on the penalty for our sins and died the death that we deserved. Um, and not only did he take on our penalty and give us forgiveness of sins, but he gives us new life, a life to walk in him, to be with him. And so I think with that, even in the trials, even the battles, we can be reminded and be steadfast in who the Lord is and that he has already given us victory um, over sin and death. And so we stand firm in the truth um, of the gospel that one day also Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all things new. And there's going to be a day when there's going to be no more battles, no more war, no more striving. And he's going to wipe out all darkness and all sin, all evil. It's all going to be gone. And as I was reflecting on this passage today, um, there's a passage that came to mind um, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. says this, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Just as God was giving the land to Israel for the purpose of dwelling with the people, there's also going to be a day in the new heaven and new earth where we get to dwell with God forever. And that's exciting. and That's beautiful. And we're so excited um, that in that time, there's not going to be, again, there's no tears. There's no striving. There's no war. Sin's going to be gone. There's no pain. And it's so crazy to me. It's so crazy that God would still choose to dwell with his people, even though we are a stubborn people sometimes. That <laughs> um, even we, so often we, betray him or sin against him, that he still chooses and wants to be with us and dwell with his people. And praise be to God that he gave his son Jesus as his only son so that um, Jesus would cover our sins and that we would have a relationship with God. Because sin separated us, but Jesus made a way that we could know him, that we could love him, that there would no longer be this separation between us, but that we could have a relationship with him. I think it's just so awesome. Again, just the thought that God wants to dwell with his people, that he chooses relationship with his people. He went to the extent of sacrificing his own son because he wants us. Um, so there's going to be a day when the battle is going to be over. I can't wait for that day. <laughs> um, but also we can be reminded in the here and now like we talked about earlier, God hears our prayers, even in the battle. And God's presence is near, even in the battle. Um, so I don't know where that lands for you today. Um, Cody and Lindsay, you can feel free to come back up. Um, but we're just, let's come together before the Lord. Um, 
pray that we can be comforted by his truth that um, he hears us, he knows us, he's near and he's close. Um, so let's come to him together in prayer. psalmist says what is man that God you are mindful of him God thank you that you desire to be with your people you long to know them you long to love them to be with them Thank you that you desire to dwell with your people. And thank you that even today we can come boldly before you because of Jesus. We have access to your grace because of Jesus. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus. That he took our sin and our shame, and bore them on the cross. He offers us forgiveness and offers us new life. We thank you for the present reality that for those in Christ Jesus, that we are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And that there is going to be a day when we are, you're going to rescue us from the presence of sin. It's no longer going to be there. And we get to dwell with you forever. To be your people, to worship you and you alone, to not have our affection set on anything else, anyone else, but only on you. So God, we come before you today. God, whatever battles are being experienced in this room, whether it has to do with the work, maybe it has to do with spiritual warfare, maybe it has to do with sin, maybe it has to do with doubt. God, we trust and know and believe that you hear us, you hear our prayers, that you're calling us to trust you, you're calling us to cry out to you. And we thank you for the truth that you're near, you're so near in those seasons, even when we don't feel you, we know that you are near your people. So God is your people. May we worship you this morning. May we go about our days worshiping you because of the truth of who you are, that you have made a way for us to be with you, to be in relationship with you, to know you and to love you. So God, we give it all to you. And we give you all the glory all the praise and all the honor because you're worthy, worthy of it all. So we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.